So what we're really doing is working our way through the book of Acts. Um, and the theme as we've been sort of uh, focusing on is that theme of the walls coming down. One of the characteristics of Second Temple Judaism, which is the Judaism of Jesus, it's the world out of which the church came, was that they became increasingly insular and began to put up uh, barriers. They thought of themselves as a people set apart and they began to define themselves as being opposed to others. And so the Gentiles were the others. And we had a lot of practices that sort of set people off. Uh, as we enter the book of Acts, one of the major themes is how God is at work so that those walls begin to come down. Do you remember the first story that we saw that? Final exam. <laughs> Pentecost. What's the barrier that's overcome? The barrier of language. Uh, going back to the book of Genesis, going back to the Tower of Babel story, uh, through the power of God, that wall falls. And then in chapter uh, 3, the next chapter, we have the paralytic, the guy born, uh, who could not, he was not whole from birth. And so according to the, the law, according to Torah, what is he forbidden to do? He cannot enter the temple. So his friends carrying him up, and he's right there on the steps outside the actual uh, temple up on the platform. And then uh, Peter and John, you know, we don't have money, but what we have, we will give you. And he's healed, and of course, for the first time in his life, he can participate. So we begin to see these things rippling out. Last week, Luke introduced to, introduced to us a, a couple of interesting terms. It's the term Hebrews and the term Hellenists. And there he's referring to, uh, to Christians of two different types. Do you remember what Hebrews were? Jews. What kind of Jews are they? Christian Jews, but they have a distinction. Yeah, in Jerusalem, they speak Aramaic or Hebrew. Yeah, these are probably meant to be Palestinian Jews. Uh, they would be more insular than the Jews who live out in the diaspora. Uh, the Hellenists, of course, are the exact opposite. Uh, the book of Acts says that for Pentecost, they had come in from all over the, you know, the known world, uh, from all different kinds of country. And they're probably much more open to the, the larger culture. So you've got two groups of Jews, and they're at Pentecost. Some of both are now Christian. So guess what? Those tensions that existed within the Judaism get imported into the church, and those tensions are still there. For the next few chapters, we're going to be introduced to a series of the Hellenists. Today will be Stephen, and then when we come back from a break after Ted Campbell from Perkins speaks for three weeks, We'll hit Philip, and do you remember the other famous Hellenists? The Apostle Paul, Paul and Barnabas. So this is a remarkable group of people. So today we're in Acts 7. Uh, last week, uh, Stephen had gotten in trouble and had been sort of arrested. And we're going to hear today what happens in his speech. And again, the speeches carry a lot of weight in the book of Acts. Uh, it's a mixture of, of Luke and other sources. Um, so there's a lot of theology, but there's a lot going on in these. Then the high priest, back up. Do you remember who arrested him? Who did he get in trouble with? He didn't get in trouble with the high priest. He was in the synagogue of the freedmen. That's a Hellenistic synagogue. So Stephen is a Hellenist, Greek-speaking Jew, for Jesus, and this does not go down well in the local Hellenistic synagogue. And so the people there are upset with him, and so they haul him before the high priest. The high priest asks him, are these things so? There are some pretty darn serious accusations being made against you. 
Stephen replied, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Classic Lucan style. You're going to get a speech, okay? <laughs> and the speech is going to be full of theology and all kinds of wonderful things. Now, seven is, uh, Stephen is one of the seven that was elected. Remember the, uh, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. The Hebrews are taking care of their widows, but they're not taking care of the Hellenistic widows. And the solution is, well, get your own leadership, you know, and fix it. And they do. They get the seven. He's been arrested because of a disturbance in that synagogue. He's now been brought to the Jewish council. Uh, he's accused, and th this is from last week, of attacking the very foundations of Judaism. If you remember, there were four charges. Uh, he said things against God, which would be what? What's the term we use? Blasphemy. Against Moses, against the law, and against the temple. As we saw from quotations from Josephus, Philo, and some others last week, in the first century, all of these things could be construed as blasphemy. If you spoke against Moses, the lawgiver, you spoke against God. If you spoke against God's temple, you spoke against God. If you spoke against Torah, you spoke against God. So these are serious charges. Any one of them brings death penalty. Now what they're referring to is, uh, you can see this one place is in Leviticus. Uh, if when a person blasphemes, you know, however that's construed, you take them outside the camp, let all who are within hearing lay their hands on his head. This is not an anointing. Let the whole congregation stone him. So capital punishment is not carried out by an individual. It's carried out by the community. You have done something that has been construed to fundamentally threaten the community. So the community, therefore, has the right to act. So the question here is, are the charges true? Stephen's been accused of, of charges that can bring the death penalty. Are they true? And, you know, uh, Luke always talks about the witnesses being false, but listen to what he has to say. Stephen is now given a chance to defend himself, uh, and he does not say what you would expect. I would think, I'm not a lawyer, but I would think a good defense would be to defend yourself, not attack the people who attacked you. But this is what, what he does. Uh, his fence, he's going to narrate this, the story of Israel, uh, but he's going to do it in that very interesting way. Stephen is going to be a little selective. He's going to dip into the story of Israel, and he's just going to lift out a few little things. And they're the kinds of things that are just designed to irritate people and rub them the wrong way. Uh, nothing could be more offensive to a first century Jew, particularly a Palestinian Jew, than what he's about to say. It's going to guarantee. I mean, there's only one logical outcome at the end of this speech to what can happen to him, and it's wh what happens. So he begins at the beginning of Jewish history. And who, where does Jewish history begin? Not Genesis, not Genesis 1. Abraham. Father Abraham. So he is the father of nations. He is the father of the, 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 the Hebrew people. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and then on down the road. So we're going to begin with a story of where God no longer works with the human race as a total, but where God begins to work with a family, with a group. That's where our story begins. So Acts, starting verse 2. The God of glory, this would be the God of Israel, appeared to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Do you remember where he was in Mesopotamia? Ur of the Chaldees. Today that would be in what? Iraq, I believe. He said to him, leave your country and your relatives, which seems to imply that he was actually from that area. Go to the land that I will show you. Now there's a deal for you. Leave everything you know 
everything you're comfortable with and go to, by the way, I'll talk about that later. Uh, when he left the country of the Chaldeans, he settled in Haran, which is in the country of? Turkey. I'm thinking Syria, but up in that area, upper Mesopotamia. So Haran, Turkey, somewhere up in there. Uh, after his father died, God had him move from there. This is an interesting way to approach it. To this country in which you are now leaving, living. We won't even name it. Just to your current location. God did not give Abraham any of it. As a heritage. Not even a single foot. And as you can tell here, he's going out of his way to make a point. But it's an interesting point. God did not give the promised land to Abraham. That's an interesting kind of thing. Remember the, the promise that God made to Abraham? Land, descendants, blessing, that you'll be a blessing. God spoke in these terms, that his descendants would be not citizens, not natives, but resident aliens. Now that is a term that carries a particular meaning in the first century A.D., a resident alien is what you have when you have somebody who lives inside Israel who's not an Israelite. They're there, they reside, but they're not an Israelite. They're a foreigner. And there's a set of rules that they, that they uh, call the Noahide laws that they operate under. And the country belonging to others who would enslave them. Now what book are we in? Book of Exodus. They get enslaved, mistreat them, 400 years. So we're at the closing of the book of Genesis but and the opening of the book of Exodus. But I will judge the nation that they serve, says God, and after that they shall come out, the Exodus, they shall come out and worship me. Where did they do that? Sinai, Horeb, depending on the tradition, to this place. Now, it's interesting that the key to the Abraham story, at least in the way that that Stephen's going to spin the story is it's all about geography. It's about what you mention and it's about what you omit. And there's a pretty powerful theme emerging here. <laughs> Stephen has carefully edited the Abraham story in a way that no first century uh, Palestinian Jew would, uh, would appreciate. He's narrated only the parts where Abraham is outside of Palestine, Israel, the promised land, the holy land. Uh, we've got him acting in Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees. We've got him in Haran. We've got him in Egypt. And we've got him at Sinai. Where's the only place we don't have him? We don't have him in the promised land. He omits any reference to the activity of God in the holy land or the promised land. Uh, and he won't even name it. He has this sort of weird thing. This country in which you are now living. So it's obvious something is really going on here. Then he goes out of his way to say, Abraham, the father of our people, has no claim to the promised land. Which, you know, Genesis would reinforce that. God promised it to who? Your descendants. Yeah, so it's not, not to him. Uh, but to go out of your way and say not even a foot's length of it. So in the narration we have here, Abram, Abraham is never part of the promised land. He is not by definition as an Israelite, what would he be? Now, what's that other term we've been using? 
Yeah, he's a resident alien, as his descendants will be. He's the father. If he's not a resident alien, he's the father of resident aliens from other countries. Um, again, this is a term used for foreigners living inside the borders. It's a term for Gentiles. A resident alien is, by definition, a Gentile. Because a Gentile is simply what? A non-Jew. Real simple kind of dividing up the world. Us and them. We're Jews. They're not. They're Gentiles. He concludes by affirming that God is to be worshipped in this place. Now where is this place? Outside Palestine. In the Sinai. In the land of Midian. You know, foreign territory. So this place is not the Holy Land. It is not Jerusalem. It is not the temple. Now what do we know about by the first century AD from probably the time of Hezekiah and Joshua forward, where is the appropriate place to worship God? Jerusalem, temple. How many other temples are approved? Not, okay. We reduced it down one, the Deuteronomic reform. There were temples in Egypt, uh, Elephantine and other places. We know of other temples that existed, but it was not approved. Uh, God is to be worshiped outside the Holy Land in Sinai. Now, do you remember the audience that he's speaking to? The high priest in Jerusalem who is in charge of running the temple. So this keeps that in the background, you know. This guy is not selling out to win popularity. Stephen's version, Abraham's story, tells us that God is present and active outside Israel and is to be worshipped outside of Israel. Always a popular theme in Israel. Okay, next we're going to skip a little forward. We're going to skip Isaac. We're going to skip Jacob. We're going to land in the great grandson. We're going to turn to Joseph. Another wonderful story. And again, we're going to selectively look at that story. The patriarchs. Now, common sense would tell us who are the patriarchs? Isaac and Jacob, yeah. And Rebecca and Rachel and Sarah, you know. Uh, patriarchs and matriarchs. But it's, watch it. He uses the term in a different way. The patriarchs, jealous of Joseph. Now, you've read Genesis. Who in the Genesis story was jealous of Joseph? His brothers. That's right, the other 11, you know. Uh, great family, okay? <laughs> Sold him into Egypt, you know, in, in, into Egypt. And I'd been with him after some of the stuff, his dreams and the comments he makes, he deserved to go, you know. <laughs> but God was with him. So the patriarchs dump him. God rescues him which kind of puts the patriarchs and God at odds with each other. God rescued him from all his afflictions, enabled him to win favor. When he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, again, we've got the focus, where are we? Not in Palestine, not in the Holy Land. We've got God operating in Egypt. God is active. God rescues Joseph, again, in the land of Egypt. There are parts of the story that are in Palestine. That's not the parts that Stephen wants to tell. But there's something even more disturbing about this story that he tells of, of Joseph, not just that where God's operating. Joseph's problems are caused not by Gentiles, not by foreigners, but by his own people, his own family, his own brothers. They are lifted up as the heavies. He's rescued by a Gentile king. Which means, in this version of Israel's history, who are the bad guys? The Jews. Who are the good guys? 
the Gentiles. He's really trying hard to be popular. Uh, patriarchs, not his brothers. This is, this is a shift. This is a twist. This is not what Genesis says. But this is what he says. They're the ones who sell him into slavery. And we got this Pharaoh, this Gentile Pharaoh who rescues him. Now, we've done Abraham. We've done Joseph. It's going to slide forward a little bit. We're going to move to the Moses story. Again, what would you expect to have? Selective telling of the Moses story. At this time, Moses was born. And it's a wonderful line. He was beautiful before God. Isn't that a great line? Wish that, you know, say that about us. That'd be great, you know. For three months, he was brought up in his father's house. Then he was, whoa. It's <laughs> not what Genesis says. What does Genesis say? Saved him. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. from certain death. We're a little revisionist history here, okay? <laughs> he was abandoned. Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as their own son. Yeah, it's, it's the basic story, but you've thrown a fundamental twist into it. Again, Stephen, or Luke, has fundamentally rewritten Jewish history in a way in which reflects very poorly on the Jewish people. Remember his audience, who he's talking to here. Moses is abandoned by the Jews. He's adopted and nurtured by Gentile. Later, this is in Genesis. Uh, with again, we have a little bit of a twist here. Joseph, I mean, uh, Moses tries to rescue an Israelite. And what happens? The Israelite turns on him and betrays him. Now, in Genesis, why does Moses leave Egypt and flee to Midian? Who wants to kill him? Pharaoh, the Egyptians. What do you think Stephen's version says? The Israelite wants to kill him. But the man who was wronging his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became a resident alien. This, that theme is just being woven in. So obviously, resident alien is a very important thing for this speech in the land of Midian. Uh, like Joseph, we got Moses mistreated by the Jewish people. First, his parents abandoned him. Uh, then he has to flee Egypt, not because of a nasty old Pharaoh, but because of those nasty old Jews. Uh, and he, uh, this fellow Israelite has done that to him. Like the children of Abraham, he now becomes a resident alien in the land of Midian. Now, interestingly enough, what happens in this foreign country of Midian? Who does he meet there? He meets the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not in the Holy Land. Not on Mount Zion. Not in the temple. No, anachronism temple doesn't exist yet. But he meets him in this, this place. Uh, Moses encounters God. And now Stephen will now, next part of the speech, wants to lift up this encounter. Again, not the way it occurs in the earlier version. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals of your feet, which tracks. Do you remember why he takes them off? The ground upon which you stand is holy ground. Now, where is the ground he's standing on? Not in Israel, not in the Holy Land, not Mount Zion, not the temple. 
way off in the boonies. So as with Abraham and Joseph, Stephen highlights that God is present and outside Palestine, active. Uh, we got a foreign Gentile land, can be holy ground. Uh, he's identified each of the great figures of, Jesus, of history as resident aliens of their day. Now he's going to now look at the uh, one of the great stories of the Old Testament, the golden uh, calf incident. Do you remember who, who uh, made the calf? Who is Aaron? Moses' brother. I love family dynamics, okay? <laughs> Moses up communing with God. What's the brother doing down at the bottom of the hill? Ah, went into business. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey Moses. So the Jewish people at odds with Moses. Instead, they pushed him aside. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make gods for us who will lead us. Uh, at that time, they made a calf, offered a sacrifice to an idol, and reveled in, and now we're going to drop a code phrase, the works of our hands. Just flag that. That phrase is going to come up one more time in the speech at a very, very critical place. Right now, all he wants to do is just introduce to us. That, that phrase, works of our hands, is code, and it carries a lot of power in the first century. So Stephen has now introduced this key phrase. It's to describe the golden calf, which is not a good thing. So anything else we say is made with human hands would not be a good thing. Be ready for it when it comes. Um, the phrase carries all kinds of meaning, and he will use it at that very, very pivotal place in the story. Uh, Stephen ends by lifting up the period of wandering in the wilderness. Now, when they're wandering in the wilderness, this is before they come to the Holy Land. This is before they occupy the land. This is before David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and seizes Jerusalem. This is before who builds the temple? Solomon builds the temple, before all that happens. Uh, and then Stephen's view, that, and this is a view shared by others uh, in the Old Testament, this is the great golden age, you know. There is a strand of tradition in the Bible which, which views this as the idyllic, basically when they, you know, we didn't have the temple or any of that. We were out there in the wilderness. We were just with God. Verse 44. Our ancestors had a tent of testimony in the wilderness as God directed. So what was God's plan? We have a tent of testimony, a tabernacle. Then he spoke to Moses, ordering him to make it according to the pattern he had seen. Now, where would Moses have seen the pattern for the Ten of Testimony? I'm thinking up on the mountain, communing with God. Was the, as it seems to be the inference. So God wanted it this way. God showed Moses a plan. Our ancestors, in turn, brought the Ten of Testimony in with Joshua, and it was there until the time of David. So until David, how did God's people worship? Without a temple, with this mobile worship set up, the, you know, had the Ark of the Covenant, we had the Tent of Testimony, we had the Tabernacle, we could move around. God, which, by the way, the footnote of that is, was God limited to a particular location? No. God traveled with us. Uh, it's made according to a divine pattern, yeah, the pattern that Moses has seen, and it's built, quote, as God directed. So three times there, we're told this is what God wants. The Ten of Testimonies, the way God wants to be worshipped, the way we did worship God until somebody messed it up. <laughs> now, who tried to mess it up, but God wouldn't let him? David. 
Who did mess it up? Solomon. By building that dad burned stinking temple. Stephen then drops the bombshell. And this is the crescendo. Kind of comes to this point. This, this, is the, this is what gets him killed. But it was Solomon who built the house for him, which God never wanted, by the way. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made from... So the temple is what? It's an idol. The temple is made by human hands just like the golden calf was. It is an idol. Now, if that doesn't get you killed in front of the high priest, I don't know what will. Not only is the temple not what God wanted, not only is God not present in the temple, which he says, worse still, it is simply a modern golden calf, somebody trying to create something you know, to house God. And we get within tradition, I'm just going to share two of them with you, but there's multiple in the Old Testament. Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, they have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. Shows up in Psalm 115, the idols of silver and gold, the work of human hands. So within Jewish tradition, this idea of it's being made with human hands is a euphemism for something that's idolatrous. You know, it's not what God intends. And so uh, Stephen, Luke, picks that up, weaves it into the story. So when Stephen says he's the temple is made with human hands and that God does not dwell there, is it pretty clear what he's saying? Okay, just what the high priest wants to hear. Now, earlier, Stephen had been accused of speaking against the temple. Uh, this is the reason he's been hauled in. Back in chapter 6, this, never, this man never stopped saying things against the holy place. You're the jury. Guilty or not guilty? Guilty. And remember, Jesus made some comments kind of against the temple. Uh, it's clear the charges are true, at least in these charges. Uh, and for this, Stephen will have to pay. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they became enraged. No surprise there. I love this language. They ground their teeth. You know, just, you, know, you know what's coming. And with a loud shout, all rushed together against him, mob. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And when they was uh, stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. By the way, we've we heard that before. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus hanging on the cross, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Where do you seen that before? Gospel Luke, Jesus hanging on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. One of the things that Luke does is he portrays the death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, as being very, very Christ-like. When he had said this, he died. Devout men buried him. Who does Luke pointedly omit saying buried him Christians you would expect the brothers devout men now do you know do you remember in the second temple Judaism the connection the book it's in the book of Tobit some other books what was so significant about burying the dead it was an you know, act of Jewish piety it's very 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 important that the dead be buried they, you know, break the bones of Jesus on the cross because it's, you know, before the sun sets. They want to have him buried. 
Uh, Luke parallels again the death of uh, Stephen so that it looks like a, an emulation of the death of Christ. Same kind of things coming from his lips. Uh, asking God to forgive. Asking God to receive his spirit. Shockingly, uh, several uh, major scholars have pointed this out. It, it, it's, it stands out that as you read the narrative, where are the, the brothers? Where are the other Christians? There's not one shred of evidence that any Christian lifted a finger to defend Stephen or to help him. Now, for one thing, where are the Hellenists? Where do you think they'd be? If you were a Hellenist, where would you be? Yeah, you'd be booking it, okay? So, and we get told later that they'd flee. But there's the Hebrews, the apostles, and the others. Why does someone, no one come forward to defend him? So according to the Jewish tradition, devout men, there's no indication these are believers. Maybe they're just Jews um, who, according to the Jewish piety and Jewish tradition, want to make sure the corpse is buried. So they do this. And again, no mention of the brothers. It is possible. Um, several scholars have brought this up. It is possible that based on what is comes from the lips of Stephen, nobody wanted to defend him. Now, if you're a Hebrew who's a Christian, are you going to like what he says against the temple? No. So there, there may have not been much sympathy for him there. Uh, and that may explain the, the silence, but it does stand out. But the real issue behind the story is that, and he introduced this in chapter 6 when he gave us the groups, the Hebrews and the Hellenists, that we have two fundamentally different views of what it means to be God's people. And, and, and these are views that we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts that are played out. One will be represented by Paul. And the other will be represented, and Paul talks about in Galatians and other places, by the people who follow him around trying to undermine him. And it becomes a major theme in the book of Acts. You've got real tension, fundamental tension, between two groups struggling with what does it mean to be God's people. Remember the council uh, uh, in Jerusalem that will come a little later? This is one of the places it comes to a head. It really comes to a head at Antioch, which we'll have that story later. Uh, we, we got Hebrew, and we've got Hellenist. Now, at the end of the story, Luke leaves us with two things that he's kind of introduced and just laid out there that are crucial as we continue through the book of Acts. First, he introduces us to a character who will dominate the remainder of Acts. We've got a Hellenist, Saul of Tarsus. And he is introduced not as a Christian. He is introduced as an enemy of the faith. And so he's, he sprinkles it in there a little bit at the end of chapter 7, a little bit of chapter 8. The witnesses laid the coats of the feet of a young man named Saul. We don't know what his function was. Some speculation is maybe he was in charge of carrying out the sentence. That's just pure speculation. But Saul, Luke says, approved of killing him. And then a little later, we're, we're given this. Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house. You know, it's not enough to get the Christians as they come out in the open. We're going into their homes, and we're just going to grab them. Dragging off both men and women, he committed them to prison. Now, this is one of those places where we have uh, some collaborative evidence from the letters of Paul. There's more than one. I'm just going to share one with you. In Galatians 1, as Paul tells a little bit of autobiography, he says this. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. Yeah, yeah, you heard of you. I was violently 
persecuting the church of God and was trying to destroy it. So what Luke says there is accurate. The second thing that Luke sticks out here is he lets us know that the death of Stephen had what was probably an unintended consequence for the people who killed him. Now, if you're going to kill somebody, what are you trying to do? Yeah, cover it up, kill his idea. So one attempt was to kill Jesus, and we'll stop the Jesus movement that way. Did it work? No. We're going to now try to kill what Stephen is doing by killing Stephen. Will it work? No. As a matter of fact, it'll have exactly the opposite. Here's the unlikely outcome. Uh, And it's an outcome that's going to dominate, and it's going to domino down through the rest of the book of Acts. 8-1. The day... That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. This is not empire-wide, Palestinian-wide. This is isolated. It happens in Jerusalem. And all were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Have you ever stomped a fire ant mound? Yeah. Unintended consequences, you know. Uh, If you're trying to get them to go away, it is not the way to do it. And he drops this little thing in, except the apostles. They were safe. Now, why would the apostles be safe? What are, they're not what? They're Hebrews. They're not Hellenists. Where has been ground zero for this whole conflict? The synagogue of the freedmen, the Hellenistic synagogue. Uh, and again, with different languages, it's more likely they went to different synagogues. Luke seems to be indicating that the incident, the Stephen incident, the persecution, and the scattering were very limited. It's, n- it's, just, it's just Jerusalem, and it's limited to probably, this is speculation, but probably one synagogue. What he gives us an insight as to what happens in the synagogue of the freedmen. Uh, this is where the controversy broke out. This is the group that sees Stephen. This is the group that hauls him before the council. This is the group that stoned him. It is quite possible that the Hebrews did not even know this was going on at the time. We don't know. Uh, But they were excluded as a group. They're unaffected, and they're most likely, you know, someplace else when this happens. So they're exempt. You know, they're not being looked for. So what does Acts depict in chapter 7? A purge. A purge of one synagogue of Hellenists that's become infected with a disease. What's the disease? Christianity. And so to protect our synagogue and to protect our way of life and to protect our faith, what are we going to do? We're going to cut the cancer out. And we kill the leader, the vocal leader, Stephen. And what do the others do? Run for their lives, which is a smart thing to do. Uh, So by removing the, the Jesus believers from the synagogue of the freedmen, and then after the expulsion of the Hellenists, the Christian community of Jerusalem, uh, and this is what Acts begins to indicate, if you take the Hellenists out of play, who's left? And they're the group most likely to be comfortable with traditional, conservative, temple-based, Torah-based uh, you know, Judaism. And as the book of Acts rolls forward, where is the center of traditional, Torah-based Right there in Jerusalem. Christians too. So the leader of that group becomes James the Just. The brother of Jesus. Called Just. Because he is so conservative in his Jewish faith. And even later he will get killed because he's not conservative enough. As they move towards 
the, uh, the revolt. Um, so ironically, the persecution winds up spreading the faith. The Hellenists scatter. And then very at the end here, he gives us this real quick, some snapshots before he moves on to Stephen. All except the apostles were scattered throughout the country of Judea and Samaria. We've seen that. And then verse 4. Now those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. This is your worst nightmare, you know, if you're trying to get rid of it. In chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over Stephen. So real specific there. Traveled as far as Phoenicia, the coast. Cyprus, do you remember who's from Cyprus? Barnabas, okay? And Antioch, and Antioch becomes the center of this group. Uh, but among them were some men of uh, Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also proclaiming the Lord Jesus. So they go up to the Hellenistic synagogue in Antioch. Uh, the Hellenist uh, believers are driven out probably somewhere around the year 32, 33, early on. They're driven out and they go directly into mission. So the cancer now spreads. We now have two church centers. This is critical for the remainder of Acts. We've got Jerusalem, mother church of the Hebrew Christians, strongly embracing the Jewish faith. We've got Antioch, mother church of the Hellenists, with a much more inclusive kind of view of the world. Um, it is Antioch that will launch the Gentile mission, often commonly called Paul's first missionary journey. It's really Barnabas's, and Paul goes as his assistant. Uh, it includes Barnabas. It includes Paul. Chapter 8, Luke will turn his attention to another of the Hellenists. He's going to talk about Philip, and this is before we move on to Antioch, because Philip stays kind of local. Samaria, Judea, and we have some wonderful stories of him. So it's actually not next week. Next week, Ted Campbell will be with us for three weeks for a little church history, uh, ancient church, the medieval church, and the Reformation church. Uh, I'm just out one week, but then we'll be back, and then we will continue in about three weeks with Book of Acts with another Hellenist.